Welcome to In Orbit, the podcast exploring how technology from space is empowering a better world, brought to you by the satellite applications Catapult. I'm your host, Sarah Crudis, and in this series, we'll be in conversation with some of the most inspiring minds in the country, exploring the ways that the UK is using space to make huge differences to our everyday lives, as well as gaining a better understanding of its role in shaping and sustaining our planet for the future. Today, in the final episode of our second series, we're discussing the future of rocket launches from the UK. I'm joined remotely from the Westcott Space Cluster by Mike Curtis-Rouse, Head of Access to Space at the Satellite Applications Catapult, and Matt Escott, CEO and co-founder of ProtoLaunch, and all the way from Argentina, Dan Ettenberg, CEO of Lear Aerospace. Access to space in the UK is changing. New technology emerges every year, creating the opportunity for new types of companies to exploit the power of space. The next natural step in the UK space industry's journey is launch. Spaceport sites have been planned across the UK, including in Scotland and Cornwall, which could cement the country as Europe's most attractive destination for commercial spaceflight activities. But what will these spaceports look like? How will they operate? And what challenges are we facing? The UK is a prime location for spaceflight. We have been a pioneer in space technology for over 50 years. From the launches of the Black Arrow rockets in the late 1960s and early 1970s to our thriving small satellite market. The UK is at the forefront of space technology and services and our universities are respected globally for their space science research. We are ready to exploit the new commercial opportunities that launching from UK soil would bring. Mike, I'm just going to um, start with you. Can you just set the scene in terms of where we are now with launch compared to you know, the layperson might look at space and think of the space race in the 1960s? How much progression have we seen over the last five, six decades? Thanks, Sarah. And simply, I mean, it's insane. It's uh, outstanding. Back in 2011, 2012, we probably had globally something in the region of 10 to 12 companies building launch vehicles to get into space. Now, some of these were big platforms operated by the space agencies like the European Space Agency in the case of Ariane 5. And some of these were slightly smaller launch vehicles operated by a variety of commercial organizations. But today we have something in the region of about 300 plus organizations actively competing to put things into space. Now, not all of these are comprised of rockets. We've got a whole variety of exciting concepts out there, ranging from balloons and rockets, combined knowing as, as raccoons, and we're not necessarily a big fan of those, right across to catapults, and catapults, and I should state, nothing to do with my organization, but catapults, which literally will fling things into space, and of course, conventional rockets, which take off vertically, or in the case of space planes, take off horizontally. So suddenly, we've gone from having so few launch vehicles and comparatively little investment into something which is actually a very difficult, very challenging uh, a type of engineering and science to somewhere where we've got huge amounts of investment, huge numbers of organizations competing, and not just organizations from the typical locations in terms of leading, in terms of launch, in terms of Russia and the United States, but organizations coming from across the world. I mean, I think almost every country in the world, 192, 196 companies, something like that, you will find in almost every single one of those countries, maybe not Greenland, but pretty much everywhere else, someone has a launch vehicle company. And in a way, um, with the two panelists that we have today to talk about it, it's a great to talk about a, U a launch company coming out of the UK. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that would have been practically unheard of. And at the same time, a launch company coming out of Argentina. I mean, in a way, our panelists demonstrate to the, uh, to the wider audience 
there is this huge diversity of organizations, individuals and nations participating in what we call new space. And and why do you think now is the time that um, space is no longer the preserve of two superpowers, but, but so many more countries and, and people within these countries can set up companies to be part of this new commercial space sector? Well, partially it's been because um, a few internet billionaires and one or two others basically have decided to plough significant of their personal wealth into competing with each other. So instead of having the USSR versus USA, we now have Musk versus Branson or Branson versus Bezos. Um, So it's all about these new opportunities. And I think with the kind of dawn of new technologies we've seen in the last couple of decades, whether that's been the internet picking up and moving ahead so it becomes in a way, a fundamental part of our lives to using technology like electric electric vehicles or mobile phones or tablets, etc. Suddenly, the average citizen can start saying, you know what, I can do that. That's not hard. Or I can go into this incubation or innovation framework and I can do this or I can get investment or I can do this. And that's it's that asking that question of can I do this and then getting an answer back, even if it's not necessarily a sensible answer, sometimes saying, well, actually, you probably can. So that's why we're really in this super exciting spot right now where people are doing all sorts of interesting things and launch right now is dominating. And I think this is probably a good time to bring in Matt Escock and Dan Ettenberg. Um, Matt, if I could just start with you, can you, um, you're the CEO and co-founder of ProtoLaunch. Can you just talk through what exactly ProtoLaunch is trying to do and why this could potentially be so significant for the UK? Yeah, so ProtoLaunch, we are a chemical propulsion startup, uh, so we make rocket engines. Kind of what Rolls-Royce is to aeroplanes, we're trying to be for spacecraft. Um, but the differentiator of kind of what, what we're doing differently and where our core tech is, it's all about throttling these engines and making sure we don't use complicated and expensive um, turbo pumps. So all about trying to, to keep it simple, but not trying to sacrifice um, performance. Um, and yeah, so we're, we're based down in the southeast of England at Westcott. We run our own um, propulsion test facility where day to day we are firing engines, we are qualifying our products. Um, and I think what a lot of people don't, don't realize is that this is happening in the UK already. You know, this is a test site which has lots of companies on um, and rocket engines are, are being fired in the UK already. It's not something that's coming. It's something that's, that's already happening. And I think launch is the, the next step. Would you say, um, and Mike, perhaps you want to pick up on this also, uh, would you say that the launch market's becoming saturated somewhat, as in that there's a lot of companies trying to do launch and not all of them are going to succeed? In, in the long term, the potential market size for in-space operations and, and just the entire in-space economy in general is, is enormous. It, it sounds dramatic, but you can make arguments that it's, it's, it's bigger than the economy on Earth once you move into, into the in-space environment. So in the long term, there is more than enough market size for commercial entities to, to capitalize on that. I think the challenge will be in the short term, how many of those companies can, have the cash flow to, to get to that market realization. Um, and I think that, that will mean there will be some consolidation. Um, not all the companies that are around today will be around uh, in 10 years' time, um, but the market will be there. Um, it, it's just who, who will win out in the short term. Yeah, I'd echo that, Matt. It's, it's, it's a good point, and it's about space is such a big opportunity, such a huge commercial opportunity that absolutely in the future, space is going to dominate every economy on Earth. We won't just be talking about are you part of the aerospace industry on Earth? We'll be saying, are you part of the aerospace industry on Luna? Are you part of the aerospace industry on Venus or Mars? So there are, really is no limit to that effectively market size. But the challenge we have right now is we have an awful lot of organizations who 
think that they can build rockets and as matt and um as dan will talk about rockets are hard really hard and building one rocket is actually you know what it's not that hard you can build something explosive you get fire out the back and it goes up in the air but to do that repeatedly in a way which is commercially sustainable and perhaps we should even argue environmentally sustainable is a very very different um uh, uh, kettle of fish and most of the organizations out there of those 300 i've cited the reality is is i would anticipate somewhere in the region of 260 270 don't make it and even that might be um frankly um slightly optimistic it might be even fewer it really takes a very different organization with a long-term view and a good commercial and a good technological roadmap and the right backing to actually make it to be successful and and just to bring Dan in at, the, at this point, I, I think um, in, you're the CEO, Dan Attenberg, you're the CEO of Leo Aerospace. Leo Aerospace let me repeat that. Um, what is your long-term vision? How are you unique to the other companies out there? Okay, we are uh, right now. We're developing a, a series of products, uh, mainly focusing on in-orbit servicing manufacturing. We want to be the propulsion provider of space type and spacecraft uh, moving from low Earth orbit to other orbits or higher orbits or different planes. And the idea of LIA is uh, in the next few years leveraging on the on the price. Uh, I mean, the price will get even lower of space access uh, due to the new uh, Starship that will eventually get to space and get the, 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 the price of getting into space really low. They say they will get down to $200 per kilogram. And with this in mind, having a cost-effective propulsion system, you can get use of these rideshare opportunities and move in space into the final destination. For example, uh, in a very steep plane uh, inclination maneuvering or getting into MEO or even GEO orbits, even going to the moon or having a lander. That is the approach of the aerospace right now in terms of propulsion systems for spacecraft. Not only chemical propulsion for satellites, uh, for uh, big delta V maneuvering, but uh, eventually developing landers, GNC algorithms, and carrying things, and maybe having like a car space cargo as a service uh, kind of business. It seems re really ambitious, but Matt and Mike, they I think they both agree, and they even ha have said this: space economy will grow in a way we cannot imagine, and we like to say that space is the new internet. So 20 years ago, you wouldn't imagine having this conversation or having cryptocurrencies or making payments through the internet to buy cryptocurrencies or whatever things now are having through the internet. So space will become something in our daily basis for the economy, for the humankind operations and things we might not understand. So right now we're developing these products. We want to have an enormous demonstration next year of our very, our smallest propulsion system with a 500 Newton thruster. Uh, and well, and we are doing all this with good green propellants. So we are uh, looking into all the carbon footprint of all the uh, inside testing of our, of our propellants, our combustion, our thrusters, uh, well, and hopefully getting into space sooner than later. So we'll touch on sustainability and, and carbon footprints uh, in a moment. But in terms of, uh, I think you make a very good point there, Dan, um, in terms of the, the internet in the 1990s and how we couldn't imagine the world of today and the same is happening with space now. We can't imagine the companies that will come from space technology and maybe we think um, less of space as a place to go but in, instead of a place to do business. Um, how optimistic are you about how fast we can succeed in um, disrupting the way that we access space over the next decade or so? 
Well, uh, it's a tough question, but we've seen uh, how reusability in terms of space access has, was a game changer. Uh, we we see Elon Musk going crazy among very crazy things and achieving his objectives on reusing each rocket 10 times that was inconceivable and unimaginable about 15 or 20 years ago, though there were pr uh, projects of re reusing boosters or single stage to orbit or whatever, but we will see space access to get cheaper and much more frequent. So this, I mean, if actually the Starship comes online and starts working, it is supposed to go to space three times a day, every day. So the amount of things we will be able to throw into space is amazing. So this whole space economy, it's like we can't even imagine how this will ramp up and all the opportunities that will be engaged by entrepreneurs and big businesses looking into this amazingly low cost of getting into orbit. I mean, $200 per kilo, it was, it used to be $50,000 per kilo with the space shuttle. And that is coming down to 200. So that's pretty amazing. And this will revolutionize the way we go into space and the way we make business in space. So, I mean, the, the biggest thing is yet to come in the next maybe five years. So, yeah. So, so the real takeaway from that is, is essentially that change is happening much faster than many people outside of the industry might realise. Um, Mike Curtis-Rouse, just to bring you, you back in, in terms of the opportunity in the UK, what opportunity is there for launch and how are we going to see that develop over the next decade? Well, I mean, it's an interesting point, Sarah, and I mean, just, just backing up some very slightly just to comment on Dan's um, uh, comments about Starship and things like that. And I, it, it is absolutely a time for revolution. But one of the key things we have to look at is what has been done. So I'm a great fan of new technology, but I believe it when I see it. So Starship's going to need to demonstrate its potential before I'm going to buy the $200 a kilo effectively. But, you know, it's good to have a vision and it's good to have an ambition. And that's certainly doing that. So and, and that perfectly chimes into exactly what we see from the UK. Now, the UK isn't fundamentally a good place to launch from. Bottom line, um, we have seven nominated spaceports, but the reality is, is actually, if you really want to put things into space, you go near the equator because you get basically a, a, um, effectively a boost to your launch speed by the, rotational uh, by the rotation of the Earth. Now, the UK is clearly not by the equator, otherwise we'd all be enjoying slightly better weather. So we have to deal with the fact that we are somewhat more remote. Now, the reality is, is we can still put things into interesting orbits like um, sun-synchronous orbit out of the UK. And I'll let Matt talk about that perhaps in a minute, because it's better to have the rocket companies talk about where we might put things and how we might launch things, um, and down to that matter as well. But why the UK? Well, the UK has got everything from testing capabilities in terms of what Matt is using, manufacturing innovation. We have the right skills. We have the right people. Now, do we have the right, are we the right location to launch from? Not big rockets, certainly, but we are the right location to launch small rockets and be those sounding rockets for simulating microgravity, be them slightly larger rockets for putting small satellites into space and demonstra demonstrating the capability. We absolutely can do that. So it's bringing together a combination of location, skills, capabilities, and of course, in organizations like my own, like the Catapult and other organizations like the Knowledge Transfer Network and wider parts of the UK infrastructure to support innovation and ensure that companies operating in this space have the skills, the capabilities, and the resources they need to make themselves a success. So when can we hope to see, um, I, I know we're potentially looking at a launch later this year from Space Cornwall, but when can we hope to see regular launch within the UK? 
Well, I think it's probably an interesting question of what you would define as regular launch. To me, regular launch would probably be on a cadence of perhaps weekly, and I think that's a very long way away. I think probably in the next one to two years, we may see one or two launches out of the UK. Now, it's perhaps slightly arguable is if you launch something out of Spaceport Cornwall, for example, with Virgin Orbit, whether that's actually technically a rocket launch, because Virgin um, Orbit's launcher is a rocket which is attached to a large aircraft, which takes a lot off along a conventional runway, flies a certain distance, and then basically drops the rocket, which then climbs into orbit. I think the really interesting point when we see organizations like Orbex, who um, are planning to operate from the Sutherland spaceport, when they start launching, and they'll be launching vertically, because I think for most part, what people consider a rocket is probably a rocket which takes off vertically. Now, that's not actually technically true. A rocket could take off vertically, it could take off horizontally, and there are a whole variety of other ways of getting into space. But I think what probably the general public associate with rockets are rockets which look a little bit like Saturn V or Ariane 5 uh, and other platforms, ones which take off vertically, fire comes out the bottom, hopefully not at the top, they climb, they climb rapidly and disappear into the skies. So when will we see regular launches in the UK? I don't think we will see that for many years, five years, possibly even 10. But I think the same is actually broadly true of the rest of the world. We don't see Falcon 9s launching as yet realistically on more than a fortnightly basis. Um, we might well see that later this year. But regular launches on a, on a daily basis, I think we are probably decades away from seeing that, at least anywhere else in the world. And Matt, if you could just pick up from that, what, um, yes, we are further away, but certainly change is happening within the UK. What most excites you um, as being based in the UK about the opportunities here for launch? Um, I think the fact that there is a good chance the UK is going to be the first country in Europe, I guess, taking um, Europe geographically, to, to launch um, is, is really going to be quite an exciting um, moment. And the fact that you have got companies um, who have chosen the UK as their, their launch base uh, is significant. Um, yes, we're not great for accessing equatorial launches, but we are not badly located for going into a, a polar orbit uh, or, or sun-synchronous orbits um, if you go off uh, the top of Scotland. And I think where that's well-placed is those orbits are actually more attractive for smaller satellites because they're particularly good for Earth observation missions um, or um, communication missions. And that's the kind of launch which I think the UK will be able to support, um, certainly early on, is, is those smaller rockets. And, and so for that, that we are well located. And what makes that so exciting for you? Because you are based here. And I think one thing which has come out across this series is the fact that, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, people thought they might have to relocate to be involved in the space industry. But actually, the UK has an incredible space industry and that opportunity is continuing to grow. And I think we've always, the UK has always punched above its weight in, in space propulsion. Um, certainly lots of thrusters have been developed uh, in the UK, even if they've not been launched um, from the UK. And so it is hugely exciting to see um, all the companies working in this space and, and yeah, doing it um, uh, here at home. Uh, it's certainly brought a lot of change in the short term and kind of where it's going in the next 10 years. It's only going to keep getting bigger uh, and more and more people are going to get involved. I think space is bleeding into other industries um, in an interesting way. And it's, it's bringing in people who might not have considered themselves in the space sector um, five years ago. Their capabilities are exactly what uh, is needed. So we're seeing this blurring of the lines almost that if you were to use um, an app on your smartphone, you're using both space technology, but also a cyber tech. And it's that kind of blurring of the lines between multiple industries that we're seeing 
with space. Um, Dan Ettenberg, just to bring you back in now, you're obviously based in um, Argentina. Can you just talk about how you've become involved with the UK space sector? Well, yes, uh, it's pretty interesting. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I was in the, in, in the British Embassy here in Buenos Aires, where I was born. Uh, and it was like a pitching day, and I got in touch with uh, a woman that was working for the DIT. Eventually, she liked the project, we kept in touch. Uh, I presented the project to the GEP, that is a global entrepreneur program of the DIT, and we got selected. And that paved the way for me to get to apply for a visa, and then we set up the company in the UK. So right now we do have the company uh, in the UK, the headquarters. Maria is in a few months moving into the UK, uh, becoming a resident, and uh, starting the operations in the UK. So the idea is having a, a multinational company, having like the best of each country. Uh, I mean, we can get an amusing talent here in Argentina. Uh, we do have uh, amazing professionals and the cost is quite competitive. But in the UK, there is an amazing ecosystem. I've, I've been uh, a few months ago, I've been in the UK for about four months and I've been to Harwell and Westcott. I knew Matt uh, actually in Westcott, the satellite application catapult. And uh, the ecosystem in the UK is quite attractive and I've been told and I believe so that the UK is like the hotspot in space activity in the whole Europe continent. So I believe that is right now the best place to be in, to have commercial activities, to develop prototypes and to sell space systems to the whole world. So basically I right now, I'm in Argentina waiting for my visit to come out and then I'm moving into the UK and starting to make business from the UK to the world. That's that's quite an accolade for the the UK space industry, um, Mike. Why why do you think um, there is so much support for the space sector within the UK right now, and why are we becoming this hub within Europe? The UK has always been an interesting hub for innovation, manufacturing, materials, skills, quantum, cryo, a vast vast variety of different capabilities. The UK's, I suppose, prided itself as always being kind of the uh, you know, the innovator since the Industrial Revolution and potentially before that. So I think it goes well with the character of the nation and that we consider ourselves inventors and, and good at exploiting new types of capabilities and new types of technology. We're not necessarily quite as good as turning those into successful businesses which might stay in the UK or really become the sort of super giants which other nations have managed to do so. But we're certainly behind most of the most significant technology innovations realistically on the planet. And whether that's, you know, in the early days of television, um, basic developments around radar and radio, plastics, early rocket engines. I mean, if you think about um, Sir Frank Whittle invented the jet turbine, amongst other things. But we're also behind a much more um, recent innovations ranging from the iPhone and tablet computers to quantum computing. And it's exactly the same for space. We are very good in the UK at looking at a problem and saying, you know what, we can probably do that better or we can answer that or we can solve that. And we're fortunate that we have a government framework which promotes effectively creativity. And it, and it, can be, it doesn't just have to be engineering creativity or science creativity. It promotes creativity in all its aspects, from the, from the purest and perhaps in the arts, right across to the hardest, um, deepest in terms of hard mathematics and associate technologies. So we have this kind of cauldron of boiling innovation, ideas, technology, skills. And at the same time, we're pretty good at pouring investment in as well. So we've got organizations like the Seraphim Space Fund, 
which basically allow organizations to be get in front of entrepreneurs and people who want to invest in them and pull that investment in. So you really end up with this melting pot of technology and investment and innovation and an audience who's and effectively customers who say, why not? Why can't we do this? And that in turn either incubates and grows individuals and organizations like Preto Launch and Matt and his uh, colleagues, or attracts new organizations like Dan and, uh, and his uh, colleagues and wider organizations. So we're either good at doing it in-house or we're making it sufficiently attractive that other people looking inward say, or outward say, I want to be there too. And what more can the UK do to actually support rocket technology going forward in the future and, and the UK launch? So I think one of the big challenges is uh, is around the universities and their ability to access rocket propulsion test facilities. And we see effectively a bit of a breakdown in terms of where funding supports universities wanting to do rocket propulsion research from effectively masters up to PhD level, but also in a wider technical pool, trying to find effectively enough qualified technicians who can work on a variety of technologies which we need to support rocket engine development is that is woefully inadequate right now and we need to do better around that so we need funding to develop skills and it's it's a, you know the thing which keeps me awake at night it's not so much about rockets exploding which probably keeps matt and dan awake at night for me it's it's the it's the the concerned that we don't have a, a resilient enough skills base because you can build a rocket successfully i mean if you're really good at it you can design one on day one and you can build it on day five and you can test it on day seven if you're going really hard at it if you're dealing with skills if you want to train yourself a good engineer who has good basis in um, rocket-based technologies and all the associate disciplines you're probably talking realistically five years of hard academic study at least and you know realistically i'd rather have they have 10 years so people like Matt and Dan don't grow on trees, but we need those people growing on trees in order to build the base which allows us to build rockets rapidly. So really, Sarah, the thing which I think is most challenging right now is it's not lack of investment. That's certainly there. It's not lack of facilities. It's actually lack of skills and the support behind those skills we need to create the caliber of individuals to give us that edge. And Matt and Dan, is, is that something um, either of you or both of you would agree with? Yes, yeah, so we, we um, interact with a lot of the universities in the UK and we, we speak to fantastic graduates, either want internships or, or, or want to, to, to get into the industry. Um, and we, we really want to, to support them in, 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 in ways we can. Um, but there is certainly uh, a distinction between an academic university course and kind of hands-on um, experience in, in, in the field. Uh, I think the... That, that's where the skills gap um, primarily lies. Uh, you learn a lot when something explodes. So is it one of these almost like the Silicon Valley mentality? We, we need to adapt almost like a failing fast and option, uh, a failing fast and often approach to um, what we do in the UK. I'm, I'm certainly a, a big fan of, of that approach. And, and we try to encompass that as, as much as possible in, in the work we're doing. Um, and then, but you've also got to kind of match that with um, following uh, test campaigns that match kind of ESA standards and UKSA standards, which uh, is a very defined process that combined with fail fast and fail forward lets you progress really, really quickly. And Dan, is that something you would agree with? Totally agree. I mean, if you can see right behind me, I've had quite a bunch of blown up rocket engines. So we do fail really fast and recalculate, redesign. Uh, the idea is iterating as fast as possible. Uh, knowing from the mistakes and I mean 
the, the best teacher is failure. So we go, we fail fast. Uh, it's expensive, so I do agree that funding is really important. Uh, but we do understand that in the UK, uh, there's lots of funding opportunities, lots of grants. The government is betting really, really big on, on space sector. So hopefully in the next future, we will see lots of investment going into the private sector and into the catapults and the whole space ecosystem, hopefully. And, and do you think maybe there's a, and this is open to all of you, traditionally in the UK and Europe as well, we've we've kind of seen failure as a bad thing, whereas other countries such as the United States have embraced failure. Do you think if we're to succeed within the UK, particularly with the launch sector, we are going to have to embrace failure in order to, to continue to succeed? Well, of course we do. I mean, if, if, if uh, you let me uh, understand that Elon Musk, uh, I believe his first three rockets failed he, his fourth rocket was the last chance he had to, to succeed. And if he had failed, SpaceX today won't exist. So failure in the space sector is an option. I mean, things blow up, things break, break apart. Space is not easy and space does not help. So having that in mind and understanding that space sector was, I uh, will be a cost uh, uh, business, a very costly business. Failure is an option here. We will fail, but we will, keep on going and eventually we will succeed as long as we can and as long as the funding is there but i mean failure will come and we'll break everything apart and everything will be rebuilt and then retested and eventually qualified and then flown so yeah an interesting point there is that there's kind of there's several launch companies who recently have gone public and listed themselves on the stock market uh, i'll be very interested to see kind of what happens to their stock price when things when, when they inevitably have an explosion uh, in their testing process or in the development process, I wonder if that's going to cause these companies to be more cautious uh, or whether, uh, well, I'll be interested to see what, what, what happens there. And, and do you think having shareholders might potentially stifle the risks that um, companies can actually take? It's certainly um, a risk. Uh, it, it's certainly going to change the decision-making process uh, in, in, the, in those companies. And, and Mike, um, I, I have to ask... Um, do you think we'll have ever have the ecosystem in the UK to um, create a Jeff Bezos or an Elon Musk, which will enable them to have a huge launch company where those risks can be taken? Or do you just think that's not where the, the UK future should be within space? Oh, absolutely, Sarah, without doubt. And I think it's just a matter of time. Uh, I'm aware of a few organisations who have got some pretty lofty ambitions in the UK, which most of them probably will fail, but there's one or two who I think are definitely worth watching out for and may pop out, pop up on the radar in the next few years. I mean, if we look back to our um, history and evolution of successful companies in the, in the UK, we've had everything from leading the edge of um, effectively desktop computing across to um, jet engine technology and multimedia streaming and the birth of the internet. And Rolls-Royce were a perfectly good example. I mean, Matt, talk, Matt talks about um, proto-launch basically being having the model of supplying rocket engines, basically. Um, if you look 100 years ago in the 1920s, there were 20 or 30 companies all building a variety of aircraft but also building their own aircraft engines as well. Today, you only find Rolls-Royce, General Electric, and maybe Pratt & Whitney actually building turbine-based engines and selling them to everyone else. There's no one else making turbine engines for the most part, maybe with one or two exceptions, but pretty much they dominate the entire market. So there's absolutely no reason why the UK can't, and I only think it is a matter of time. The UK's got exactly the right ecosystem, exactly the right skills, well-positioned within Europe, uh, well-positioned internationally and has abilities to draw on things ranging from the European Space Agency across to the Commonwealth. So we're very well-placed to do it. So SpaceX, 
they have some competition right now. Are they going to be leading uh, the world in 100 years? Well, you could look back several hundred years to the East Indian Trading Company, who no longer exists today. I suspect you'll find UK companies dominating the space comfortably for the next um, 10 to 50 years. They're not here today, but I'm almost certain they will be here tomorrow. Do you think people maybe outside of the space industry need to um, dream bigger, or, or certainly us within the space industry need to dream bigger in terms of what can be achieved, particularly here in the UK? I think so, yes. But at the same time, and echoing the points of both Matt and Dan, it's about being realistic at the same time. So you can dream bigger, but if you're going to dream bigger, that doesn't mean a 65-page PowerPoint presentation. That means a sense of realism in terms of where you're going to get your funding, what your commercial model is, and what the, really the opportunity is. Not the, the, the big model isn't about launching spacecraft. Actually, it's not about putting people into space either. It's about getting out amongst the inner planets, and it's about mining resources like ice, and bringing ice back to the uh, Earth's um, orbit to use for everything for, um, from water to rocket propulsion to growing plants to radiation shielding. And those are the commodities. I mean, if I give you an example, when you basically make a product, so let's say you are making cakes and you're selling cakes locally, you don't generally worry about the type of vehicle which is going to distribute your cakes. You don't care about whether it has tires or what, what size the engine is. You just hope there's a truck which turns up or a van which collects your produce and sells it. We need to look at the space sector in the same way around launch. Don't worry about what puts you into space. Just worry about the fact there will be a vehicle which turns up, you put your produce on, and it launches, or equally your produce, if it's being manufactured in space, comes back. It's not so much about how you get it there. It's about getting it there so you can then basically do something else with it. So we're going to get to a point in the future where perhaps we, we won't think about launch in the same way we don't think about how products are delivered to our shelves. But in terms of numbers for the UK, how important is the UK launch sector, UK space launch sector to the UK going forward in the future? I mean, what is it going to be worth in the next 10, 20, 30 years? I think it's very hard to put a specific number on it because we don't we, we find that hard to quantify right now. The UK is very good at building small thrusters for a variety of um, roles in space, everything for engines, for spacecraft landing on the moon. Companies like NAMO have done that, and also interplanetary transfer, as well as um, small thrusters which are being used for station keeping, so keeping a, a satellite in the right place or controlling its orientation. We do that very well. Quantifying exactly how much that market is worth is much harder. And in the same way, saying what the UK sector today in terms of launch is worth, well, I think it would be um, audacious and probably inaccurate to say it's worth tens of millions. I think it's worth something, but it's be very hard to put an actual number on it. In time, that market, I think, comfortably could become, uh, could be become worth tens, if not hundreds, maybe hires of million. And certainly if people like Matt Escott um, and his team at ProtoLaunch have the way, then they're going to be driving that vanguard. And, and, and Mike, in, in terms of sustainability and the environmental impact of actually launching into space, some would argue that we shouldn't be launching rockets because they're bad for the environment. What would you say to that? And I, I can see your face already. It, it's a good point, Sarah. I mean, we, we are trying to protect our planet. We're trying to understand our biosphere. And we're trying to work out the fact that we've done huge amounts of damage to it. And if we want to keep living on it, and that's fundamentally what it's about, then we need to protect it and understand it. And therein lies the rub. So if we want to understand it, the best way we can do is look at the Earth. But we can't look at the Earth by just being in the sky like an aircraft. We have to actually get a little bit further away. So we need rockets to put the very assets in space, which allow us to basically be able to do a health check on the state of the planet. So 
you could argue then is, well, why do we need all these rockets? Can't we just have a few rockets doing that? Well, it's, it's a bit hard just to buy one rocket. The technology tree is actually quite significant and has a huge amount of dependencies. And actually, rockets themselves, comparatively, have fairly little impact from effectively the fuels they're burning to get into orbit. And increasingly, you can use a variety of fuels. In fact, most early rockets were using liquid um, oxygen and hydrogen, which actually predominantly creates water vapor. So the impact's minimal. More modern rockets, and this is a slight irony perhaps about SpaceX, is that they burn methane. And you can drive methane from a variety of sources, including those which are biogenerated, or you can basically use it uh, or extract it out of more um, carbon intensive processes. So some rocket fuels are certainly less good for the environment. But the key thing about all of them is the amount of pollution, the amount of carbon um, uh, effectively contribution to the atmosphere that most launches um, create is absolutely minimal compared to any other industrial process. The area we need to be a bit more socially responsible in is the manufacturing of actual rockets. So how do we manufacture the fuselage, the aerofoils, the rocket engines, etc. Because those processes tend to be very carbon intensive. L- worry less about launch. Worry more about how we build rockets in the first place. I, I think if, if 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 I sorry if I can chime in on that, um, I think people see a rocket launch and they see the the big cloud of smoke from a burning rocket engine, and that becomes a a picture of uh, you know, that can't be sustainable. And I think absolutely, if like any industry, if it can't move to being um, sustainable. Uh, environmentally, it won't be sustainable uh, commercially either. The two are very much linked. Um, but you've, I think you've got to take a, a life cycle approach and a more holistic approach than focusing just on carbon. I don't think carbon is the best metric for rocket engines. You end up releasing far more carbon transporting your Ariane rocket to French Guiana than you do from launching it, um, as, as Mike said, through the manufacturing and, and the transportation costs. I think a, a more impactful metric as well can actually be looking beyond carbon, um, other emissions that come out of these exhausts include metal oxides um, and black carbon and very small amounts, but they're being released directly into the upper atmosphere. So they can perhaps have a bigger impact than they can um, down on the ground. Uh, And so I think to to, to summarize there, it's carbon is important, but focusing, focusing solely on carbon kind of misses the big picture on how we can actually shift this to be more um, sustainable. And just to pick up on Mike's earlier point in terms of also focusing on how we um, produce the rockets and make the um, the parts of the rocket, things like additive manufacturing, 3D printing, how much um, potential does that have to actually increase sustainability for launch? Um, yeah, so the, the manufacturing process is, is one of the, the largest kind of emitters or certainly energy users uh, in the, the process uh, for manufacturing. Manufacturing is, is a very energy intensive process. Um, from an environmental point of view, additive manufacturing is fantastic. It reduces waste. But I think one of the big appeals as well is the new design envelope that additive manufacturing brings and how that actually can increase the capability um, of, of rocket engines as well as being more sustainable rather than having to sacrifice performance or actually gaining performance by shifting to these um, new technologies. Uh, and Mike, um, just to summarise as we, we come towards the end of this episode, what it means to you to be part of this industry and what it means to you to be um, helping to disrupt our space future? It's it's almost impossible to describe. Uh, I, you know, when people ask me what I do, I always kind of pause and struggle because it's quite hard to describe what I do on a daily basis. And actually my team also, well, they, I think they sometimes also wonder, but working with organisations who are fundamentally changing the shape 
of where human civilization is going. And it doesn't matter whether it's proto-launch and Lear Aerospace today or MagDrive, who we were speaking to on a previous podcast. These are organizations who are basically building the railroad to get us into space, get us not just to the moon, not just get us to Mars or Venus. These are the companies and the organizations and the people who are going to take help take humanity out of the inner planets and eventually Probably none of us um, on this call today, at least, but certainly uh, our children and perhaps our grandchildren will be basically taking humanity out of the solar system. So I don't know, Sarah, how you describe how does it feel to be part of a revolution which helps humanity exit the solar system? I think it's indescribable. I think that's a, a beautiful way of putting it. We are, we are but a speck in the cosmos and we're only just beginning to uh, you know discover what it is that's out there and what it is that we're a part of. Um, thank you so much for all three of my guests today. Mike Curtis-Rouse, Head of Access to Space at the Satellite Applications Catapult. Matt Escott, CEO and co-founder of Proto Launch, And Dan Ettenberg, CEO of LIA Aerospace, who's joined us remotely from Argentina. Thank you for joining us for this series of In Orbit. Be sure to subscribe on your favourite podcast app to be updated on future episodes. And to continue your exploration into how space is empowering industries across the UK, you can visit the Catapult website or join them on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook.